0: This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed, bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant <coughs> to a motherfucker like me, can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. <coughs> you know, Make some noise! Well, I'm here. I'm cute as shit. Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, skip, skip, skip! If you don't chew Big Red, then... F- you. That's so horny. you naked in the shower with your clothes on. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Three cash, homie. three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W-Boss, W-Boss, W-Boss. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon, good morning, good whatever the time of day it might be. My name is Sam LaCrosse, and welcome to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. Can you dig it? I can. Okay, here we go. So we're talking about hard things this week. We're talking about hard things, why things are going to be hard, why they always have been hard, why people are underestimating all the things that are worthwhile that they do, which is a very, very interesting topic to me, and I think it's, it's kind of really coming home to roost with me specifically in the aftermath of the book coming out and really seeing kind of how the process itself all wrapped up and how involved I was in that and kind of my mindset going through the entire set of I would say difficulties and I would say just a overall feeling of I don't know just kind of like lack of Awareness for really how hard something is and how hard something still is really after it has happened. And I think that a lot of people, when they get embarked on a journey that is going to be worthwhile for them, and the thing that's going to be worthwhile worthwhile to them, excuse me, they have a goal, they have something they're trying to reach, and they go and they try to do it, and after a while, they just really kind of they underestimate really how hard everything is. And I think this is a really, really interesting problem because we already kind of you know the people who at least have sense of what they're trying to do they scope out kind of how they are going to attack something what the strategy is how they're going to really map something out but they get into it and yet still they really kind of just fall apart in a lot of ways the end including myself on a lot of things more things than I could probably count and I think it's just kind of an interesting thing to kind of drive in dive into and I think the solution to that problem is that you have to realize that things are really always going to be harder than you think they're going to be. So, without further ado, let's just, uh, let's get to talking about it. It's Friday. I'm tired. I'm sorry if I sound really uh, jacked up right now, but I um, it's been a long week, so here we go. <laughs> there are certain things that can only happen in America. Regardless of your opinion on the, is, what your opinion is in the current state of our country, this is a fact that is still undeniably true. We have things called influencers that are paid more than our politicians by a sickening number of factors. Most young people in America or grow up or growing up would rather be podcasters than astronauts. We create so much content that it's a miracle that any of it ever gets discovered. Some things are so absurd, so wild, so outrageous, that they couldn't possibly exist in any other realm but the one in which we are currently living in. And Steve-O is one of those things. Steve-O, the legendary stuntman and jackass pop culture icon, was recently on Andrew Schultz's podcast, Flagrant, to discuss, among many other things, his upcoming stand-up comedy tour the Gone Too Far Tour. And Steve-O, for those who are unaware, has lived one of the most extraordinary lives of any individual in recent history. Born the son of a business tycoon who sold cigarettes for a living, Steve-O is your classic daddy's money fuck-up who, after working as a circus clown, would end up becoming unbelievably famous on the show Jackass alongside his partner in crime, Johnny Knoxville. Steve-O's antics were deemed so outrageous and so, quote, toxic to the youth of America that he was labeled a near-public-health crisis. However, Steve-O was also a private health crisis. He was, in his own words, one of the most vicious alcoholics and drug addicts that he ever knew, and see picture below for details of said debauchery this The fame, obviously, didn't help matters. Steve-O was living so large, so recklessly, that he was soon deemed a danger to himself. On multiple occasions, he was both literally and figuratively left for dead by nearly everybody, including the people that helped support him in his personal and professional lives. After the jackass rocket ship finally landed, Steve-O was, like much of the cast, left holding the bag, completely unaware of what to do next. Hollywood, as we've found out recently, and some unfortunately not so recently, is a cruel and vile business. The people that run the machine generally don't treat those that participate in that machine all that well. Once your usage of them is over, at least in their opinion, you'll be hard-pressed to find someone who will help you back on your feet. And this is exactly the situation that Steve-O found himself in. What people once saw as a human lightning rod full of audacity and sickeningly fun pleasure then saw as a liability. He was an older, drug-addicted, and more beat-up version of the guy that had once made them a lot of money. He had served their purpose to them. So, they dumped him, leaving Steve-O to fend for himself. Now, any human being would have had a massive crisis had this happened to them at the drop of a hat. This is a guy that had everything, lost everything, got everything again, and then lost everything again, all within the span of about the first 25 to 30 years of his life. He had to, once again, start over. He had gotten fucked by many people. No one had really stuck up for him enough to reinvent himself, like his colleagues Johnny Knoxville and Jeff Tremaine, a jackass, had. He was damaged goods, and no one wanted any part of it. What happened next was the primary talking point of Steve-O's appearance on Flagrant. Steve-O, as you look at him now, is thriving. He has a fucking hilarious podcast. His latest two collaborations with The Jackass have resulted in the number one movie in America and the number one film on Netflix. He's raking in money from endorsements. He's been off drugs for over a decade. He's engaged to be married. He's reinvented his lifestyle of performance in an incredibly innovative style of stand-up comedy, where he shits out semen-filled condoms and then eats them again. So, the question is, how did he get from that point A to that point B? Well, Steve-O really didn't give much of a straight answer, and for good reason. And that good reason is because there is no one reason. There is no magic bullet. I don't know the guy at all, even though I very badly want to. But I'm guessing the reason for there not being a reason is this. He couldn't give one if he tried. As mentioned, there are many people in our current culture, especially young people, that desire to be great at something. And this is a good thing. Ambition, when pointed in the proper direction, is one of the most powerful things that can exist in civilization. As Steve Jobs once said, those who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are usually the ones that do. I'm not sure if farting underwater to light things on fire counts as quote, changing the world, but it's certainly aiming in one direction versus another. But to those that do live extraordinary lives, to those that do, quote, change the world, I would imagine all of them having a very hard time answering the question, like Steve-O had to, of how they got there. This is because it's absolutely impossible to explain how hard it is to be extraordinary, There is no possible way to bring it down to earth. If it were, we'd see a lot more extraordinary people walking around it and walking about it instead of talking about it. We all know what Steve-O has shown. We know how outrageously hilarious he is. We all know what he's done. But what we don't know is what is key. We don't know all the disputes he probably had to go through with insurance companies. We don't know all the tough conversations he had to have with his parents. We don't know the hours of the phones with lawyers trying to negotiate contracts and brand deals. We don't know how the, all, all the emotional roller coaster of his life affected him. We don't know how long he got, how low he got when he was popping pills like M&M's and how big of a piece of shit he thought he was in those moments. And to be fair to steve I I don't think he knows either. He's been very open about many of the struggles he's faced when embarking on his wild ride, pun intended, of his life. But he's also a human being. He forgets things. He probably blocks out a lot of the stuff to keep the weight of all of his pain and trauma from absolutely crushing him, because it will, and it will all with extraordinary people. We both know, and we both don't know, something about steve and about all extraordinary people. We know that it is hard to do what they've done. What we don't know is how incomprehensibly hard that hard is. Let me take a personal example and extrapolate it out for you. My book, Value Economics, Study of Identity, out now came out over two and a half weeks ago from the time of this publication, and I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of what the book has done. I'm very proud of what I said within the book. I think I told the truth, said what I wanted to say, offered some valuable perspective, and gave myself some inner peace in doing so. And I'd say by all metrics that that was a very successful venture, especially into the domain of much of the unknown. But in a way, I'm kind of disappointed, because I thought this was going to be my big break moment, the thing that put me over the top the thing that would shatter the corporate shackles around my wrists and free me to vagabond the earth to trace my dreams. Instead, it turned out to be none of those things. And at first I had a hard time making sense of it. I knew the book was good. Several other people, most of whom I hardly talked to, thought so as well. I had worked on it for the better part of three years. I spent tens of thousands of dollars to get it published. I talked about things that are very uncomfortable to talk about. I've alienated family members quite severely. I've jumped through hoop after hoop of shit that had nothing to do with publishing a book to publish a book. But in a living ideal of the expectations conundrum, it didn't happen. I'm still a relatively nobody author. The only difference is that I have a book that people can buy on Amazon now. Instead, it just ended up as another feather in the cap, another notch in the belt. And granted, this is easily the most significant one of the two to date. Nothing that I've ever produced, not a single of the dozens of blog posts and podcasts that you're listening now that I've ever produced comes even close. But no know, mu- know how matter much anyone tries to dress it up, there is still what it is. A big step forward, but one that is not nearly big enough to get where I'd hoped to get. Most people have a vision of what success looks like. We hear from successful people all the time about how hard you have to work to achieve success. So naturally, we follow their lead and begin to work like they work. We follow the playbook. We read the script. We go over line by line of what we, quote, need to do in order to get where we want to get. This becomes cult-like, a near religious experience that we have to truly envelop ourselves in to get to that desired place. But this is never how it works. We never fully realize how hard this actually is. Because if we're hearing about it from other people, there is a strong likelihood that we haven't lived it ourselves. It is all the unknowns, all the hidden variables dug within the equations of our lives and our visions for them that fuck us. We have a vision of how hard we have to work, how much we have to strain, and how much of a price we really have to pay to reach the mountaintop. But until you see clarity on the mountaintop, you can never truly understand what kind of suffering the climb will entail. And it doesn't help that we indulge in self-lies. A lot of people say that they're working hard. But in reality, very few people actually are, or are at least working as hard as they need to to even have a shot at land to land an opportunity to do something with it. This also is understandable. We don't have a lot of comparisons. Extraordinary people don't come around very often. We can only go based on what we see. And if we were able to see, I honestly don't think that we would like what would be reflected back at us in the mirror. So we have ourselves a dilemma. We don't really know what to do with our goals and dreams. Or at the very least, what we have to do to get a shot at obtaining them. Like the great and powerful Steve-O, I don't think that I can give a singular answer either. A lot of people probably will think it's a waste of time after absorbing it, because it probably is. Because I'm not that extraordinary. But neither are most of us that walk the earth. So, in conclusion, I think it's at least worth taking a stab at. And to make this stab the deadliest possible, we first need to see why our dreams and goals will always be harder than we realize. Next, we must understand why, contrary to popular opinion, that this is actually a good thing. And finally, we will try to come up with actionable items to position ourselves to use what we have learned to our advantage. In short, be like Stevo. Or don't. That depends highly on which Stevo you're trying to emulate. Around a year and a half ago, my manager and my entry-level sales job left a role for a new opportunity. This, for most any young person in their first job, would be quite the dramatic change. Managers are lifelines for young people going into the workforce. They become their first mentors in guiding them through the ocean of adult working life. And, especially in a sales job, they can be the tipping point for you either staying afloat or sinking beneath the waves of your own self-pity. Fortunately for me, I was transferred to her counterpart who turned out to be the biggest role model in my professional career. He was tough, intense, and demanding, but also supportive, honest, and helpful. He and I hit it off from the jump. We were and are very similar people in terms of how we look at things and how we approach our responsibilities in our lives, both in and outside of work. I'm pretty sure that he and my dad would have been best friends in another life and or alternate universe. (coughs) Excuse me. But I was getting frustrated. I was doing very well at this point in my tenure. I felt like I was hitting my stride and pulling in the things I needed to in order to be a successful rep on the team and contribute to the broader organization. I constantly reached out there to help people, sending them messaging or other things to get them to bite on and put time on people's calendars and they asked it to time for strategize. I was trying my best to be the best teammate I can be, but I didn't feel that it was reciprocated. In fact, a lot of the times I thought the exact opposite. I thought that instead of just merely not appreciating it, my teammates were going out of their way to talk shit about me and what I was doing behind my back. I was upset that they didn't contribute nearly as much to helping the team as I did. Personalities are different and people act out their support in different ways, but I and I'm assuming a lot of you don't appreciate it when you don't feel like you haven't have to put the team on your back without any gratitude. My manager was also like this. He was a grinder and a hustler. He knew what it was like to put his head down and hold his hand out while at the same time being shamed and ignored for both as a consequence. He knew what it was like not to have reciprocity be mutually accepted by those who he thought needed to appreciate it the most. He knew what it was like to be called all the things I had been called in these situations for all my life. A tryhard, a teacher's pet, or whatever else. (coughs) I put time on my manager's calendar and unloaded when I hopped on a Zoom bridge. I told him about all my frustration, all about my anger at my teammates, everything. And, surprisingly, he didn't tell me that I was full shit. I mean, he probably thought I was throwing a slightly older version of a temper tantrum, which I'm ashamed to say I was. (coughs) Jesus. I'm sorry, guys. That's ridiculous. It's disgusting. But he just sat back, listened, and let me rant and rave about how much better I thought I was than everyone else. When I was finally done, my manager told me that what I said had merit. It's uncommon for people to work as hard as hard workers do. Like we mentioned with Stevo, there are not a lot of Stevos. They get priced out of the market pretty quickly. So, to counter my point, my manager asked me a very simple question Sam, how many hours a day do you think most people work? I did some quick math in my head. There are eight hours in the workday, not including lunch. Most of us, especially those in my profession, need a computer in order to do the jobs that we do. Computers, as mentioned and obvious to everyone, can provide a lot of distractions. YouTube rabbit holes are a welcoming distraction, but a distraction nonetheless. I didn't want to slam people too hard, but I didn't want to be totally dishonest either. After my Alan from the Hangover style math, my conclusion was that, on average, each employee at a certain job actually works an average of about six hours of the eight that they are paid for. My manager's retort, however, shocked me. Try three, he said. Now, my manager, like me, can sometimes be a cynical fuck. I think most people who have that mentality that we do can be cynical fucks more often than we would like to admit. But three hours? There couldn't have been a person who works three hours. They wouldn't have jobs if they did. They wouldn't be respected at all if they did. But my manager held firm. He, unlike me, had something that was more valuable than a sumptive math experience. He knew the bull that worked, especially in our business. He had told me that for as long as he was in the position he had been in. Both the people he supervised, their counterparts and his counterparts, all had one thing in common. They all worked around the same, and the same, that time was never what they should have been working. That meeting with my manager was the first insight into something that I would later realize to be extremely true. What people say they do, versus what they actually do, are two very different things. Think about the context of the question more. We work in sales. In a good sales organization, which I'm proud to say that I'm a part of, people are incentivized to work harder to achieve what they want. The people that go into sales, at least the good ones, are motivated by the fact that they can work harder, longer, and more creatively than most. They despise structure and want to run their own ship, much like an entrepreneur does. They want to be able to determine their own destiny, to draw their own individual line of fate in the sand. This happens in most organizations across the business world, I would imagine. People, especially those young and sucked into the vortex that is hustle culture, always talking about hustling and working, always grinding, always on the go, always telling everybody about it, but in actuality, rarely backing it up, rarely doing the hard shit you need to do and actually move on to bigger and better things in your own life. In reality, nothing is working because they refuse to work. They call that a paradox, I'm pretty sure, or Frank Costello voice. This episode with my manager constitutes the first reason why, contrary to what we think, our dreams and goals will always be harder to achieve than what we initially perceive and realize. We say more than we actually do. We constantly talk ourselves up. We bloviate on social media and on our LinkedIn profiles and in our creative endeavors, and when we go fuck the girl we met on Hinge or at a dive bar of our choosing. We do all of these things. We all do them all the time. Half the time, we don't even realize until it's too late. But in doing this, we also lie. Oftentimes, and I would argue most times, what we say about ourselves during this situation is, at best, a distortion of the truth, not the truth itself. We merely make the truth of the matter, what actually is happening in our lives, and make a caricature out of it. We constantly talk ourselves up, but we're never honest with ourselves on the one thing that truly makes us all the things we constantly say we are. The expenditure of effort. And this is the crux of the argument. What are you doing? What value are you actively providing or helping to mine for other people? How are you coordinating joint efforts with other stakeholders to make your vision a reality that everyone who has skin in the game can attain? If you ask yourself these questions and you come up empty-handed, that should be a very clear sign that what you are saying is not lining up with what you are doing. But let's just say that this is a hypothetical generalization, which, is obvious, which it obviously is. Let's say instead that you are the opposite in terms of your mentality. You're like my manager. You actually try to do things. You do do things. You walk the walk much more than you talk the talk. You truly demand excellence out of yourselves and those you surround yourself with. So you should be in the clear, right? Wrong. The thing about human beings, even the most exceptional ones, is that no matter how powerful, skilled, or talented you are, you are not omniscient. People are all universally and remarkably limited by our lack of actual perspective. Our brains, while being absolutely wonderful things, aren't the way all the way tuned in and turned up all the time. Our body can only comprehend so much. I have a hunch that we'd probably spontaneously combust if we attempted to bite off more than we could chew in that department. The lack of omniscience is a severe hindrance to us in our pursuits of what we want to achieve in life. It's very hard to navigate a road or path if you can't see what is right in front of you. We aren't God. No one is. Therefore, no one can truly know what's coming should you embark on a bold path of trying to accomplish something worthwhile. You can plan things all you want. You can create the best map. Check it a billion times, reassure yourself and your team that everything will be okay. But remember, all goes to shit when your cute kid pukes in the back of your car and your wife starts to dig into the darkest corners of your marriage on the way to Muncie, Indiana. The unexpected always happens. Everyone is caught off guard. You can't act like you're surprised. You can act like you're surprised, but that is the point of them in the first place. To get you when you never thought you would have gotten got. And shout out to Marshawn Lynch for that. Picture a typical entrepreneur, not the one who sells digital apes for millions of dollars, to be clear. The entrepreneur has an idea for a business. It's a good idea. It solves a problem and fills a need in society. A lot of people validate him in this. He goes on to start this business. He opens up a bank account, files some paperwork on LegalZoom, tells his boss to go fuck himself and his mother, and our hero is off to the races. Until the race stops. The entrepreneur, particularly in America, is built on the back of a dream. That's what consumes that person in order to eventually go through with whatever the thing that consumes them is. But dreams and reality mix together as well as oil and water. For those who didn't get a good scientific elementary education in school or who don't bake off, and the answer is, well, they don't mix well together at all. Entrepreneurs run into this problem more than any other group in my estimation. They ride the high of their dreams so fully and so completely that they forget that their dreams are worth more than money. Shout out Meek Mill. They don't think about the taxes they'll have to pay. They don't think about all the insurance policies they'll eventually have to fork over their employees into the business itself. They won't see that like me in my old job. People won't be into the vision as he is. They won't, quote, get it. He won't see them quitting when they will. He can't foresee the damage a rogue beer virus from China will cause to him. Our entrepreneur cannot see these things because no one can see these things. We would most likely go insane if we could. Entrepreneurs and small business owners are crazy people. They lay it all out on the line to even have a small chance of chasing victory at the end of the lap. There's a reason why most businesses and dreams and goals fail. Not only do they not realize how hard it will be, when it happens, they realize they never wanted the hardship in the first place. We discount everything that goes on in our lives to counterweight against the goals and ambitions that we hold for ourselves. We never imagine or account for all the things that can come up with to distract us or point us in a different direction. It does not matter if these things are good for us or not. They're objective. They don't give a fuck. They don't care. When we fail to recognize this, we fail to take account of the toll that can take us on our march forward towards them. When we either do not arm ourselves with knowledge or fail to see that uncertainty is a part of what it is to come, this can rapidly derail, and always does derail, our obstacles in reaching all of those things. They drag us down in all facets of our being. They're never fun things to face, and they never ever let up. But contrary to popular belief, hard things are not necessarily bad things. They certainly can be. I think porn stars, dicks, and the Holocaust certainly can fit that category. But most often, when things turn out to be hard, there is more reason to do them than to not do them. There is more reason to work hard and slave yourself away to accomplish those things. There is more meaning to be found within the suffering than within the ease of what you thought awaited you. This is a beautiful and necessary reality of life. And its goodness, as we'll see, comes in many forms. This might catch you off guard. It does to a lot of people. How can things that are hard, that challenge us to such an extent that we begin to doubt ourselves, be anything but bad things? Bad things put us in danger. They make us uncomfortable. They force us to question ourselves, our identities and our values. They are, in their purest form, a threat to who we currently are as individuals because they make us grow. They make us adopt. They make us aim higher, should they be constructive. In short, they're there to make us do one thing change. Change threatens all of us in a myriad of ways. This is, in large part, why hard things turn out to be hard. Anyone who's gone through any real hardship in life, no matter what it is, can tell you that it's fundamentally rewired how they see certain things. They can no longer relate to their past selves because their past selves no longer exist. They have been replaced, eviscerated, destroyed by change. Much like a chemical reaction, once a pure element is altered by a catalyst, that element can never revert back to its former self. It must settle for the new thing that it has become. It must embrace the new thing that it has become. Some chemical reactions can cause explosions. But some can also cause beautiful things to happen. It's all about the inputs. It's all about what is changing, why you are changing it, and what the desired effect of the changing is. It's up to the scientists to decide. But should those inputs be right, they can be incredibly beneficial. They can be beautiful. They can cause the change to be a good one instead of a bad one. They can inspire others to help do the same. This is why hard things, to the contrary of the belief of the softest and most coddled among us, are good. Positive change is just that. Positive change. That change can manifest in several different ways depending on what the situation is, but the end result is always the same. You will be different, which will be an adjustment. But odds are, and if you did it right, you will have to adjust to being better than you once were, which is not a bad alternative at all. The first and most obvious reasoning why behind hard things are good for you is simple is because it's simple, like I said. And the reason behind that is because they'll be worth more. This is the value sacrifice trade off in action. Anything that requires greater sacrifice must yield greater value at the end of that sacrifice, or that thing is not worth sacrificing for. It must be reevaluated and sorted accordingly. You must be re- reevaluated why you're doing that thing and sort yourself accordingly. If this is proven to be the case, then there is no reason why you should be investing in that thing at all, because you shouldn't be investing in that thing at all. Investment, particularly with the most valuable resource you have, your values, must be purposeful and contrite. You must target only the things that can provide you value in return for your value, or those things are really not things of value. They're black holes. They suck the life and the value right out from underneath your feet. In the words of Stephen Covey, the author of the very overrated, at least in my opinion, smash hit book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you must begin with the end in mind. Even though I'm not a fan of the book, there is a very powerful lesson to be learned here. When you embark on a journey within this in the back of your head, you endow the one thing we just reinforced, the half of the value-sacrifice trade-off that no one wants to talk about, and that half is sacrifice. You already know the value, the end, So now you just put yourself in the position of sacrifice, begin. This is an immensely powerful exercise because it allows you to perfectly frame the value of that specific hard thing you're trying to accomplish and paint as vivid a picture as possible. In doing this, you can allow yourself to enter a value-laden trance, to become fully in love with whatever that thing is that you were chasing. Additionally, there is an opposite, but also good, thing that happens. If you paint the picture of that thing and it is not what you expect it to be at the end of your value rainbow, you still have the dexterity and flexibility of time to dispense that and move on to something that can actually fill that void. Not all ends are good ends. Just ask the bad half of the Star Wars franchise. They'll tell you. But if the end is worth it, you must embark on the noble adventure forward towards the end, because the value sacrifice trade-off demands it. It is a call to adventure. It's something that Joseph Campbell and several others call, quote, the hero's journey. I don't know if you've heard of it before. At the end is worth it. You must answer the call. Anything less would be to shun the call of the hero, the ultimate adventure in this explicably hard thing. And that would be a shame. It would be such a waste. It would be such a failure of everything that comprises my hyper-romanticized version of human nature, and that is something we simply cannot have, and especially on my blog. Right after this, right after you accept that the start of a worthy goal always is sacrifice, it automatically opens the gateway to something else. Resilience. Resilience is something that can only be obtained through the adoption of two things, experience and toughness. It places you firmly on the strong side of the toughness gap, which will completely empower you and your sovereignty to be fully embodied throughout your actions. Additionally, being a sovereign person allows you to have the guts and the fortitude to experience things that you otherwise wouldn't experience. It is a double-edged sword, one that is tough to shoulder, but an incredibly effective one to cut through doubt with. Lots of people look at losses as only bad things. They keep score in a binary fashion. They either th- see incredible success or incredible failure and don't take anything from either. This mindset is incredibly wasteful and stupid. It removes any opportunity for you to learn from past mistakes or victories and gain perspective from both. No win that you have is so sweeping and outright that it becomes perfect. No loss is so devastating that there is anything positive or constructive for you to take from it. A binary framework, one that removes all context, is not one that is useful in venturing hard things in life. Hard things are not binary. They are not cut and dry. They are very layered and variable. No one truly knows what will happen when you embark on that type of journey. Therefore, when losses ultimately do happen, you cannot mark the whole value-laden journey down as a failure because it isn't. Instead, you need to have the courage to look for context. You need to be able to adapt and iterate to become better to make the journey more bearing, and to exchange your current suffering for future suffering that could potentially help you. What needs to be understood by everybody is that these hard things and the work that comes with them are not just isolated things. They are a path for something more fruitful down the line. It is damn hard to see it sometimes, you're deep in the shit and you don't see a way out. But you must learn to fight that instinct and face it head-on, because it's good for you to do so. You shouldn't do something just to do something. That's not very helpful at all. There must be a why a genesis, a beginning. If everything worthwhile is going to be hard, wouldn't you want to have it all things that you do be hard? Well, maybe not everything, but at least all the important things, right? I think there's more validity to that point than most would think. Because ponder this, if the value sacrifice trade-off is true, which it is because it's in my book, Value Economics: Study of Identity, out now on all platforms, then the most valuable things in life come off the backs of the most sacrifice you must fork up. So naturally, the most valuable things are those that are hardest to obtain. I think there's a lot of validity to this point. A husband and wife don't just happen by accident. There has to be sacrifice there. Our entrepreneur friend doesn't get a company by accident. There has to be sacrifice there. A set of parents don't get great kids by accident. There has to be sacrifice there. That is what awaits them at the end of the rainbow. That is what orients itself around sacrifice. Learning what is on the end of the sacrifice and how to deal with them early and often could just be the key to a happier life when it's all said and done. Lastly, no matter how much we don't want to admit it, it's usually always a good thing for certain things to be harder rather than easier. This is obviously a very contradictory thing to most people. Hard things, as mentioned before, force us to catalyze our lives and change in a fundamental way that corresponds directly to how big the change is. But that is the point. The point is to become better through that catalyst and through that dramatic change. Because no one learns from easy scenarios. No one gets better from easy scenarios. You don't necessarily get worse, but you do atrophy. Real growth comes from pain, struggle, and suffering. There is no way around it, whether you're trying to get a girl to miraculously like you or you want to get bigger in the gym. You have to get the shit kicked out of you multiple times before you can even fathom inching forward. The great and powerful Eric Weinstein's theory of the Big NAP proves this all too well at a societal level. We've had it easy for too long. We don't know how to properly deal with adversity and stress, which is why exactly everything going on in our society seems like a dumpster fire right now. No one has to be truly upstanding as a citizen because truly upstanding citizenry wasn't required. No one had to know how to be an effective leader because effective leadership wasn't required. You weren't held to the standard of upholding the virtues that have guided positive human behavior for centuries because upholding virtue wasn't required. We have a lot of soft and weak people in both positions of authority and those who report to those people. It's showing as we've gone through these unprecedented times, specifically over these last three years. It will continue to decline if we don't step up and correct it ourselves. This involves getting oriented properly around what we can do to use the fact that everything worthwhile will be harder than we expect, and positioning ourselves to take up the mantle of sacrifice to reap greater value in our lives. But oftentimes, we require examples and models to follow. And you'll learn about two of the best at this next. Brett and Alex Harris are two of the more impressive individuals that you'll come across. The two brothers, raised as teenagers a decade ago in a similarly wild world, noticed something very wrong with a lot of their counterparts that were coming up as teens. They seemed, in their opinion, to not be taking life very seriously. They were afraid to take risks. They were very tentative to do anything that comprised even the slightest bit of effort. It seemed to the brothers that they were petrified by the world itself, and that hiding from it was the best solution. In short, the Harris brothers thought the solution to their generation shrinking to the expectations of the world was the opposite of what they were doing. It was not by avoiding hard things. It was by doing hard things. To say that they took this message to heart would be a drastic understatement. In fact, they wrote a book called Do Hard Things, where they challenged their generation on nearly every aspect of living life. Not only was life hard, but making it hard was almost the whole point of doing anything at all. They formed a massive organization that spread throughout the entire country— Educating and spreading wisdom of not just their personal journeys, but that of other teenagers around the world that were after the same thing because it felt like they were lacking in their lives. Formerly dubbed the revolution, the movement became absolutely massive, vaulting the teen's profile into the stratosphere and conveying a different and unique perspective on an entire generation. I read the book a couple months ago, and to admit the truth, I was very skeptical. A book written by teenage boys is a shot in the dark at best. You truly don't know what you're getting when you open the book and begin to delve inside. But when the great and powerful Chuck Norris gives it two thumbs up, you best get it or face the consequences that his third fist embedded in his beard will enforce upon you. However, I was blown away at how much of the opposite it was. I found it to be a very impressive and highly applicable book, even if it wasn't for the market I was in. The book, in essence, was a challenge to young people to seek out hardship to, quote, do hard things in pursuit of getting greater meaning out of those things. Young people, as correctly pointed out by the brothers, are constantly coddled and protected by other people in society. They are told to stay in their lane, to not seek hard things, to leave it to the adults in the room to figure it out. But this could not be further from the truth. We need more young people in positions of influence and leadership in our country. Obviously not in all of them. Lord knows they don't need any more TikTok dances and food mashups. But if we have smart and competent young people that can do jobs and handle responsibility, they should have the opportunity to do those important jobs and take up responsibility. In adopting this mindset, said the brothers, you automatically make yourself a more impressive person, not by talking about it or thinking about it, but by actually doing it. The Harris brothers were correct in this assertion. This is something that we should be doing. But the question we must ask ourselves is, how do we position ourselves properly to know and to use what we know as an advantage. And a good place to start would be with the advantage we already know. We're already, we already have the knowledge of knowing that everything we participate in, everything we do, is going to be as hard as we can possibly imagine. In fact, it's going to be harder than that, because everything is going to be harder than that, as we've talked about. We are not omniscient, nor are we all powerful. We have the weakness of limitation that is embedded deep within the soul of every person that walks the earth. We cannot be fully prepared because full preparation is absolutely impossible. This can do one of two things. The first of those two things absolutely terrifies us. Like the teenagers that the Harris brothers spoke of, they were so terrified to exist in this climate that they couldn't even find a niche to participate in the world. The world didn't do them any favors by putting them in a box, but ultimately it is up to those put in a certain situation, no matter what that situation is, to get themselves out of it. When weak people with a weak mindset around hard things come into contact with them, they retreat. They go into a shell. They're so petrified of what could happen by their participation that they stay where they don't have to participate at all. The other thing can do, however, is empower you. If you already know that everything you do, especially if it's worthwhile in your life, is going to be harder than what you immediately perceive it to be, that is the most powerful weapon to possess in doing something very hard. The reasoning behind this is that no matter how hard that thing is, it will not catch you off guard when shit hits the fan. The people that are naive, especially those that are willfully blind themselves, miss out on this crucial advantage. They don't recognize that what they embark on is going to be as hard as it is, so they inadvertently make it harder on themselves and the shit does hit the fan. They feel cheated. They feel embarrassed. They feel that they have somehow been wronged by something that has nothing to, at all to do with what they were trying to do. They get thrown for a loop every time because they realize that nothing they embark on will ever be that simple. It would be wise to avoid this. The way you start to receive that wisdom is by battening down the hatches. You know the storm is coming. All you have to do is brace for impact. This may sound scary, but what happens should you hide unwanted things in the fog is even scarier. Ambiguity, which all humans hate, is a much worse alternative than the known thing that you must contend with. Knowing things and knowing how you respond to those things is a tremendous advantage. You would be really smart to hold tight to it when it comes. Additionally, To go forward into something really hard, I think it's useful to look backwards to see what came before. The reality is, at this point in your life, you've already probably taken on some worthwhile things, particularly if you listen to and or read my content. You've probably done something like to go to college and trade school. Some of you may be in serious relationships. Some of you may be developing your careers. And all of those are very meaningful things. All of those things, therefore, come with their own unforeseen hardness that you must adapt to in order to press on towards your goals. They have probably contained many more bumps in the road than you initially thought when you sought them out. They probably have been harder than what your parents told you or what you read on the internet. They probably have caused you a good deal of pain and suffering, even though you process them as other things to remove some of the harshness. But yet, you're still here. You're still doing them. And why? Well, because they're meaningful to you. You give a shit about them. You've done value economics, out now, and have realized that lacrosse's law, the act of choosing your hard is inherent to you reaping value out of your life because you've chosen your hard. You don't really care at how much it costs you because whatever that thing is worth paying for in your, value e- in, in your value economy, this is a very important thing. Most don't have the strength to do this, let alone live their lives by governing by it. Your past is a greater weapon than what you realize. Contrary to Kylo Ren's point, you shouldn't necessarily kill it. Rather, you should be empowered by it You've had to overcome a lot to get where you are, even if where you are isn't necessarily where you want to be. Human existence is the most remarkable thing in our world. We all had to get a whole lot of lucky breaks to even be alive at this point. You've been there. You've done that. That's not only a saying, it's a mindset. It's saying to yourself correctly that you can take the pounding. It's a data point, and hopefully multiple data points, that can alert you to the fact that what you're going through is just a variation of what you've been through before. It may be dressed up differently, and it may be more or less hard than before, but it's still the same grind, the same mindset. Use this knowledge that you have, created about, that you have about yourself to have propel you forward. Use it to create inertia and momentum. It's hard to stop an object that stays in motion, particularly if it is being driven forward by its own will. Determination, the willingness to willfully take on suffering when it stares you right in the face, is one of the most profound assets you can have. And building on that point, the final thing you should do to position yourself to use this knowledge to your advantage is this. Learn to sit within your own suffering. Sitting in an uncomfortable situation is something that human beings are downright horrible at, because we don't like to be uncomfortable. We're creatures of habit, and habit is a direct enemy of uncomfortability. However, there is something that you and everyone must remember while engaging in this. You must remember that things of meaning and what you go through to attain them makes up a large percentage of value that you're going to end up with out of your life. It may not be fun. In fact, it may and probably is going to suck a lot of the time. But it is far better than the alternative. It is far worse to play life safe. It is far worse to not do anything at all. What I found out through this crazy process of both writing and publishing a book and of doing anything else like it is that it's going to hurt a lot before you get to feel a remote bit of goodness about what you're doing. There's going to be a lot of self-doubt. There's going to be a lot of times where you question what the fuck you're doing and why the fuck you're even doing it. A lot of people that you know, particularly a lot of people that care deeply about you, will contribute to this. But I can guarantee that, should you go down this path, that you will feel better about yourself when finished. You will feel that you've accomplished something of merit, because you have. That feeling is a great one, and one that I wish everyone could have. Not a lot of people will, because a lot of people don't want to put themselves out there. And that mindset's also fine. But... In my opinion, there is one that is better, and I'll let you be the judge of what that is. No path is ever a straight line. Nothing that involves meaning can be attained without the corresponding suffering attached to it. However, that suffering can come in forms that are much less than obvious. The key to obtaining meaningful things is not to control the path to getting there, but to walk it with as much resilience as possible. In being able to take hits, you become wiser. In being able to deal with unexpected consequences, you become smarter. By undertaking anything like what you try to achieve in general, you become better. Although, channeling the after-sobriety Stevo instead of the before-sobriety Stevo is definitely the optimal choice. And with that, everybody, we are through. We're through. That is the podcast for this week. Sorry if I was a little bit, I don't know, washed out. I kind of just got hit by a train all of a sudden when I started podcasting. You never know what's going to happen when you start one of these things. But it is is—it um, is good to see all you guys again. Again, value economics, study of identity out now on all Amazon platform, or all platforms, including Amazon, I should say. Doing pretty well right now, all thanks to you guys. I really appreciate the support, the hard work, the effort, everything you guys are doing to respond to my content, including with this. So have a great weekend, guys. Have a great week ahead. Own the day. Open your mind. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Dino you know what gots to happen. I lay back in the cut, tame myself. Think about the shit and I think you will. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?